Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show, and we talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Beyond the Game. Ever wonder what your life will be like after sport? Check out Beyond the Game, an organization dedicated to elevating the vision of athletes through the connection of sport to what's next. Their aim is to create better athletes, stronger leaders, tighter teams, and most importantly, more enlightened people. Through research-based workshops, team seminars, keynote speaking, and one-on-one coaching, they guide people through some of the difficult transitions in sport and life. Follow their journey on Facebook and LinkedIn at Beyond the Game, on Instagram at Beyond underscore the Game, and on their website, GoBeyondTheGame.ca. Now with all that done, let's go. Welcome to episode 21 of the podcast. Today's guest is David Yu. David is the lead hockey analyst at SportLogic. SportLogic started professional hockey and has worked with the last five Stanley Cup champions. They brought their AI technology and expertise into soccer, football, and lacrosse. David has been with SportLogic for almost three years. He has published two papers at the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference. Prior to this, he attended University of Toronto and majored in molecular genetics and was a PhD candidate in studying the evolutionary biology of vision. David is also a two-time Canadian University Ultimate Bronze Medalist. Here is my interview with David Yu. So I'm here with David Yu. Uh, He's in the world of hockey analytics, something that I'm not too familiar with, so I'm really excited to hear about it and just his journey to get there. So David, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm uh, ready to learn about a new topic. So David, we're going to get right started here. How did you get into being a lead hockey analyst at Sport Logic, getting into the world of hockey analytics? Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a winding path for me career-wise. Like I actually studied uh, biology in both uh, undergrad and actually was doing a, a PhD in biology, but you know, it just wasn't fulfilling and, and I wasn't sort of getting what I wanted out of it. So I ended up actually quitting that PhD and started learning like data science and data analytics and uh, actually just spent like six months kind of like uh, doing online courses. Uh, there were a lot of these things popping up around that time. Uh, and just trying to like get an education uh, outside of the, you know, the, the, the trappings of sort of like university and, and sort of a formal education system. And then I eventually sort of uh, got my foot in the door at, uh, you know, like a, a data analyst, analytics job working in finance in Toronto. And then a couple of years ago, my partner actually moved to Montreal and, you know, for her career, for her dream job. And I ended up following her over here. And I was, I was lucky enough to sort of land at uh, a sports analytics uh, startup called SportLogic. And I've sort of been, been here ever since. Along the way, we've managed to sort of uh, publish research, you know, in some big sort of uh, sports analytics journals like the, uh, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and also have, you know, presented our work uh, at uh, hockey analytics conferences sort of across North America and then day to day, you know, we, we also work on our, our sort of main job is sort of like serving analytics to 
uh, a lot of our clients, which, you know, include almost all of the teams in the NHL right now. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty interesting and pretty varied job. For sure. And can you expand a bit on sort of what led you to switch careers there? Uh, was there like a certain person that would really inspired you to do that? Like, did you see someone else kind of shifting from their career into something else or what kind of led to that? Yeah, it was it was partly because, you know, like I'd wanted to become a professor and uh, that that sort of career path is is by sort of like all, you know, metrics, like a pretty low percentage. I mean, you're really just taking a bet on yourself and and you really have to do like really like innovative and, and sort of interesting research in order to be able to to have a reasonable chance at doing that. And for reasons that were, you know, I, I believe largely out of my control, I wasn't able to like establish the right kind of connections and do the right kinds of research that I thought would give me the best chance of, of achieving that goal. And, you know, if you don't end up becoming sort of like a, a tenured professor, the life is, is quite difficult where you're kind of, you have no job stability, you're, you're bouncing around between different places every couple of years, and, and you're also not earning, you know, very good money, if at all. So it's, uh, it's a really tough gig if you don't, you know, come out in that, like, you know, top 5% or whatever. The idea of transitioning to data science was just because, you know, I really enjoy doing research. I really enjoy looking at data. And, you know, I sort of knew that this was something that by all indications would be something that's important for, for a future career outside of academia. And I sort of just started tackling that challenge head on. I took the series of courses, uh, that was put out online by the Johns, Johns Hopkins University. And, you know, at this time, like internet education was still pretty young. And the people that were sort of teaching these courses um, were, weren't teaching them because they were trying to make an extra buck or their, their chairperson of their department asked them to, to make an online course because they needed an online course for, for the, the curriculum or something. Like these were really, really passionate teachers and they're sort of in, like the, the way of teaching and their enthusiasm for teaching was really infectious. And, you know, I would say like everything I learned in that Johns Hopkins uh, series of courses, it, it taught me almost everything I needed to know where so many of the things that I work on now are, were exposed to me in that sort of uh, series of courses that I initially took um, coming out of grad school. I do appreciate that. And so in terms of what you learned specifically, can you give maybe like one skill that you took out of it and then sort of in after that explain hockey analytics for the, the general lay person out there in terms of what does that actually look like? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think uh, it's really important to sort of be able to communicate your data and sort of make your data interpretable to people. And oftentimes the best way is rather than having you sort of, you know, talk about the data or present the data is actually just to expose the data to somebody who's non-technical in a very interactive way. So this is like, you know, the classic idea of like building an interactive dashboard. And that's something that like the final course in this sort of Johns Hopkins um, sort of series of courses was about building like one of these prototype interactive dashboards. And and that's something that uh, has really stuck with me. I've, I've sort of continued to, to do that consistently throughout my career, both like, you know, inside sports analytics, as well as, you know, uh, in, in sort of side projects that I've done. And that's something that I find uh, is, is very valuable because, you know, the data is only so, so valuable if you're the only person that understands what the insights are. 
and you're the only person that knows how to sort of generate new insights from the data, it's so much more powerful if you can expose it in a way that allows other people, especially people with like knowledge of the domain to be able to access it. And then I guess transitioning to this second question of hockey analytics. Yeah, I mean, hockey analytics is is sort of a lot of things. I think there's actually not a whole lot of agreement even sometimes in the hockey (laughs) analytics community about exactly what constitutes uh, hockey analytics. But broadly speaking, it's the idea that you can collect data from the game. So things that describe the game, whether it's, you know, events that happen in the game, like a shot, a pass, puck battle, something along those lines, or even more sort of like granularly, you can start collecting data like the location of every player on the ice, you know, 30 times a second and, and generate these player tracks. And the idea is that like you can take that data and come to some meaningful insight about the game of hockey that number one is 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 maybe more unbiased than you know just having a person watch a sample of hockey games because you can you can have this data source across all games in all situations. Um, so number one, it can maybe be a little bit more unbiased. And, and number two, hopefully you're not losing too much, right? Because anytime you convert what's happening, you know, at the finer levels of the game into sort of data, you're losing some aspect of the data, right? Even player tracks at 30 frames a second, like you don't know where the player's facing, you don't know where uh, their stick is necessarily, you might not know you know, exactly sort of the forces that are being generated on their body. Like we're, we're starting to get to that point of even having that kind of data, but you know, any, any sort of sports analytics, you're, you're dealing with data that doesn't fully describe the game. And that's where this idea of like, Oh, sometimes people tell sports analysts all the time, like watch the game, right. Watch the game because you know, the data for sure can't pick up everything, but if we can make the data pick up, you know, 60% of what people see on the ice, we can actually have algorithms trained to understand the game using that limited sample of the data, but it can be applied across 100% of the games that we have the data for. Versus a scout might only be able to watch one game, two games, three games a night, maybe four games a night. And they might not be able to capture all the the things that they they see with, with as much sort of detail as they would like. And so both sides have their strong suits and, and, and their, their, their weaknesses, their strengths and weaknesses. And I guess the, the analytic component is really about trying to push the strengths of having this data-driven approach uh, to understanding, you know, player and team performance. So, for example, let's say you're the Oilers, um, you have Connor McDavid on your team. What are some data points that you would be able to see that shows you that he's the best player on the ice or he makes his teammates better? Like, what's an example of a data point that you could use as his agent, let's say, to negotiate a higher contract, for example, things like that? Yeah, for sure. I I think it's actually almost too easy with Connor McDavid, right? Because, I mean, he, Mm -hmm. you know, fills the net, you know, he makes great passes. But, you know, the things that you're missing when you when you look at a player like Connor McDavid that you might not necessarily see, like you see the blazing speed, right? But, you know, we're able to now quantify things like exactly how fast he plays, right? And we can show that he is actually one of the fastest players in the league. And what's what's interesting is that that speed, that like speed increase that he has 
is primarily in the neutral zone and the defensive zone. So once he gets into the ozone, you know, things just generally slow down and, and sort of his effectiveness at, you know, continuing to, you know, have that blazing speed in the neutral zone is, is limited, right? Because, you know, you have to kind of get the puck closer to the net and there's a lot of bodies in the way. But where we see Connor McDavid's sort of uh, speed that we can calculate from, from uh, looking at the data, you know, his speed in the neutral zone is, is really pretty unparalleled. And, and that was one of the sort of the research papers that we published a couple of years ago. Even more sort of like generally, you can just see that he gets a lot of controlled entries. And what a controlled entry is, for, for those that don't know, it, it's when you enter the offensive zone with, with control of the puck you know, uh, with, with the puck on your stick rather than let's say dumping it in or something where you lose control of the puck and then you have to, uh, you know, go and try and pick the puck back up. And, and McDavid, he, he generates a lot of controlled entries. He also generates a lot of uh, what's called like odd man rushes. So where, you know, his team has a numerical superiority over the other team, over the defending team. So, you know, these things are quantifiable, right? And once you have that data, you can, you can start to see who's doing this stuff well. What's more interesting is that once you know what's important, you know, once you know, oh, maybe I want somebody who has a lot of speed or I want somebody who makes a lot of controlled entries, you can actually go and find other players that might not have that flash or maybe that finishing ability that McDavid has, but still has this like neutral zone offensive, you know, like, like controlled entry ability. And, you know, like anyone, anyone can tell you that McDavid's an amazing player, but where the, where the Delta is, where, where the analytics can, can really start to help is giving you an idea of who these players are either in the NHL who are underappreciated or even at lower leagues, right? Uh, Let's say the AHL and the development team, or, or even at the junior level, right? Like really trying to understand, you know, not just at the, you know, points level who's successful, but sort of at these, uh, at these sort of like important sort of subcomponent step who's generating value as well so yeah that's a little bit about how you can use analytics to uh to let's say improve your uh favorite team that's great that you shared that and uh i know there's not you can't explain all of uh analytics here in in the podcast so i do appreciate you sharing just a little bit there but in terms of before your role at sport logic how did you even get into the the world of analytics was it hard to get into as a potential outsider like how does that work in terms of your roles before and then taking the courses as you mentioned at john hopkins university how did you kind of get into the world then yeah for me like i i grew up in winnipeg and i've been you know like a pretty big winnipeg jets fan uh all my life and and the jets obviously actually had to leave Winnipeg uh, for 15 years. So they, they left town in 1996. And, uh, and then we eventually, you know, had a team relocated from Atlanta to Winnipeg again in 2011. Um, and so that team, though, was just really, really bad. So at least you're being honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take I mean, you, you can't lie about how good this team is. It just wasn't very good at all. So what what the first few years was was just you know I got really into sort of this blog uh, that was uh, written by Garrett or, or that was run by Garrett Holt, who has since gone on to I think found his own hockey analytics company based out of Vancouver. But anyway, he was managing this uh, this Jets Nation blog at the time, and it was a very sort of like numerically and, and analytically forward blog, and 
you know, I've since sort of met and, and sort of like, you know, Garrett Holt didn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily the originator of a lot of these ideas, but for me, like he, he was the one that helped popularize them or, or, or at least got me to understand that there was value in doing this kind of work. And, uh, and it's been pretty cool since then to, to sort of like meet a lot of the people that have really, you know, done the groundwork, uh, I would say for, for the hockey analytics movement. And even though I haven't actually met Garrett myself, you know, in person yet, still looking forward to that day. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was really influential, at least in my sort of introduction into hockey analytics. In terms of getting a job in, in sports analytics, it's, it's quite difficult, I would say. I sort of lucked out in where, you know, I joined a company when it was really, really small, like SportLogic was like 20 people. And I was like the second data analyst on the team. You know, we recently uh, started hiring and I think, you know, there's so many qualified candidates now. And, you know, we've had to, unfortunately, you know, like turn down people that were, you know, really, really good. And it is a thing where it is a tough industry to break into, especially given now that, you know, COVID has really sort of had a big impact on the professional sports world. And, and uh, you know, budgets are sort of like tight across, across the board. Across all sports. Across all sports. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, for um, sure. and for the, maybe the, at least the foreseeable future, right. For the, for the medium term future. So yeah, it, it's a tough gig to break into. And, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of been, you know, thinking about, you know, how to give back and, and ways to sort of, yeah, help increase participation as well as increase maybe diversity in sports analytics. It's a tough industry to crack. I, I sort of just stumbled into it because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are really interested in this stuff and it can be tough to uh, get your foot in the door. For sure. And then this will be the last question of this uh, first segment here, but you just mentioned it's tough. What if someone's really passionate about it? What would be some advice you would say, like, these are the courses you need to take. These are the somewhat steps you should take to try to get to your dream job there in sport analytics. What's good is that there is a lot more public data out there. So the data actually is starting to become, you know, increasingly democratized. It's at different levels in different sports. I would say hockey is probably actually more behind than some of the other major sports. So I, I would say, you know, if you're really interested in things like football and soccer and uh, even basketball and, and baseball, there's some really, really great data sets. Um, and, and you're basically able to access the same level of data sets that the professionals inside teams are using. And with that data, you can actually do, you know, you can actually start to replicate interesting work. You can start to do uh, interesting work on your own once you've sort of figured out the areas that you like to explore. And so in some ways, the data has actually made it possible for, for more people to get involved. What you still need are the technical skills, right? And, uh, and this is where you know, the diversity starts to drop off is that the, the kinds of people that are both interested in sports and interested in say computer programming and statistics and, and data, you know, really, really heavily biases towards like males and, and, and maybe, maybe like Caucasian and, and maybe Asian males. And so this is where, you know, I do see there's a, a significant sort of like gender and maybe even racial gap that, you know, a lot of people in sports analytic, analytics are now starting to try and address. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's a perfect initiative yet. We're still working on it. 
but it is it is this thing where you know we we hope that we can you know bring more people into the into the space and one of the things that makes it harder to bring people into the space is that it's so competitive that you almost have to be, have all of these skills and have done all the work already before you're even considered for a hire like for free kind of thing like volunteer or, or like what are you thinking exactly yeah so this is this is where you know i still think that we can make the system better because you know pay, you know paying people is obviously going to be hard but asking sort of um the youngest and and most inexperienced people in you know your field to do work for both free and while unsupervised is is sort of like i mean it really is like tough right like for for someone to both uh, not be paid and not be sort of like uh, guided along, right? And so I think there's there's probably opportunity there to at least help provide guidance. And and people have, you know, started sort of uh, setting up some of the, these initiatives. And I've been trying to help out as much as I can. It's definitely something that you know. Hopefully the industry grows, and then hopefully we also um, make it more equitable. Um, and that's something that yeah is is something I'm I'm passionate about. Appreciate you sharing all those things, David. But we're going to jump here to day-to-day life. So kind of walk through uh, pre-COVID and then maybe during COVID. What does your day look like? Are you communicating with teams? Are teams reaching out to your company? How does that kind of all work? Yeah, yeah. For Sport Logic, like we actually work across sort of four major sports. Uh, but I primarily focus on on hockey. Uh, in hockey, which is our sort of our, our original sport and maybe our sort of main sport still. You know, we we really have like relationships with almost all of the NHL teams. We've got like a league-wide deal with the Swedish Hockey League, which most people think is probably like the third or fourth best league in the world. And we, you know, cover games all throughout the the major junior level uh, in North America and also all of the AHL. So there's there's sort of like clients across all of these sort of different leagues. So you know, on, on sort of my team where we're at, we're do we're the analysts. We don't necessarily deal with clients one-to-one. Uh, we, we have mm-hmm. like client managers that do a lot more of the communication. A lot of our work is basically trying to provide um, custom reports and custom metrics for these teams. Um, so they'll come to us with a pretty specific request and we'll try and deliver something to them either one time or on a recurring basis. So this could be like every day or every month or every after every Mm. game or even after every period. So that's maybe I would say like close to 50% of the work is, is sort of this reporting aspect of, and, and it's what we're primarily responsible for uh, as, as the sort of our mandate as a team is to make sure that clients are happy. Now on the side, because sports is very cyclical and these requests usually come in, in, in certain times of the year, like, you know, during preseason or in the lead up to the playoffs, there's a lot of sort of, work to do in, in terms of the, the, the client analytics work. But in, in other times, it's maybe a little bit less busy. And, and we basically try and take that time and use it towards building and prototyping new metrics and new, new models. And so this would, and, and sort of uh, taking some of that stuff and trying to show others um, in the hockey analytics and sports analytic communities, the the value of it. So that would be, you know, like trying to go to conference presentations, writing papers and, and things like that. So yeah, it's sort of like a mix of client work as well as R&D work for the, the broader sort of 
goal of like trying to push sports, sports analytics and, and specifically hockey analytics forward. And in terms of, uh, you mentioned the clients, uh, they can choose, you know, let's say they get it after a period or after a game or monthly and those things. How does the data actually get out? Is that sort of automated through like an email? Is it like encrypted, that kind of thing? Like how much security is there with that? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's either emailed or we use like a secure file transfer protocol like SFTP uh, as well. So uh, that's how these reports are are delivered. Yeah, we have way too many reports that we we can't sort of like send it out manually or anything like that. So this stuff is 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 all sort of automated through um, through like Python and uh, some of the things that we built in Python. It's awesome. And so you mentioned you wouldn't be speaking to clients specifically, right? They would kind of talk to the client managers, kind of your customer service team, and then they would relay some messages to you. Is that kind of how it goes? Yeah, that's usually the flow of information, though, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have, have met, you know, enough people sort of like in the industry, like working at teams and stuff that, you know, sometimes I do sort of field questions and queries from from various uh, people that work at teams and sort of have a relationship now with with a few of these people at, at some of the some of the teams that we work with. But yeah, generally speaking, like we, we try and make sure that things are sort of going through the proper channels, let's say. That's cool. And in terms of how the teams use it, are most teams using it for strategy purposes? Are they using it for scouting free agency what would you say is like the main thing teams use this information for yeah it's a real mix and it probably would depend on the team but the the main things are you know opposition scouting so trying to understand what their next opponent their tendencies are what they might be doing and, and sort of how to exploit that so that's one one sort of major component and is really tied to the video and the fact that in our application, we can tie specific events directly to the video. Uh, so if you wanted to watch every puck battle by, you know, Ryan O'Reilly or something, you know, you can do that. Or if you want to watch every face-off or, or every pass by, by one player in a certain zone, you know, that's possible. The other main uh, component is sort of, yeah, the, the player evaluation stuff. And that, you know, spans drafting to free agency to trade mm-hmm. deadline. So, you know, the, the same set of tools, you know, is set up slightly differently, can be used to address a lot of these same questions. Yeah, so that's that's probably the, the two main ways that teams are using our data right now. And do teams have their own set of analytics people kind of running some other information? Or are they looking for kind of a third party like yourself uh, to help them out? That's a good question. I think I think some teams do, and some teams have have much much larger departments than others. Like I, I think the Leafs are probably pretty well known to be one of the biggest operations. I think they probably have close to close to six or seven people at, at least, sort of working working full time, probably on this stuff. The advantage of having people in house is is obviously that anything that we provide, and and we work with almost all the NHL teams at this point. Anything we provide is also going to be available to other teams. Now, there's still going to be differences mm. in, in how you use the data. And so you can still get a competitive advantage if you can use the data better than someone else. But if you want to, let's say, build out something on your own, and if you want to build out something better, it, it obviously makes sense to hire a, an in-house staff to do it because then you know for sure that other teams probably don't have that that same approach, right? 
you know, hockey organizations, I think, are generally speaking a little later to the party than than in other major sports in in like major North American sports. You know, baseball, obviously, with sort of the popularity of Moneyball and, you know, baseball research departments are, I think, sometimes in the 20 to 30 people range. And like the Maple Leafs and, and their sort of six or seven analysts would actually be a very small department by baseball standards. So in, in a lot of ways, hockey is sort of almost like one of the last frontiers, at, le- at least for the major North American sports, right? So there, there's definitely a, still a tremendous amount of opportunity to explore and, and sort of gain an advantage in, in hockey analytics because, yeah, it is comparatively further behind than, than, than other sports. And uh, would you say baseball, just the way the sport is, it's a very stat-driven sport, as uh, people may know. So would you say baseball just lends itself handier to analytics, or I guess they were just like kind of the first pioneers? Would you say there are certain sports that make itself easier for analytics, or would you say it's all the same? Yeah, definitely some are easier, right? Baseball's quite a bit easier because it really is this like one-to-one, one-v-one sort of thing between the batter and the pitcher. So and and baseball, you know, there, there's not a whole lot of interactions. Uh, everything is pretty contained. And that's why, you know, baseball, the statistics have been tracked for a long time. Mm-hmm. And people have been able to do a lot with, like, the box score statistics. But, you know, now baseball is at the age where they're literally looking at, like, the joints of a pitcher as they're making a pitch. And, you know, they have the spin rates and the the speed and the the, the dip of every ball that's thrown, right? And the exit velocity of every ball that's batted so you know even though baseball is easy to analyze versus hockey where you know people are changing on the fly that the puck is bouncing all over the place there's you know six people on the ice trying to trying to a lot of chaos a lot a lot of chaos right but even though baseball is this much more sort of like regular or or like contained system there's still so much to be explored there, there's still tons of really interesting and, and groundbreaking stuff that's happening in baseball right now. Great news and uh, shout out to Moneyball. I know that was a book that I read uh, when I was younger and it was a, a great insight into analytics and sort of what the Oakland Athletics were doing as sort of the innovative team. Now everyone does it and baseball analytics is pretty normalized now. Can you talk a little bit about what your role is kind of during the playoffs? Is that sort of some added pressure? I guess there's less teams talking to you but or your company. Is there added pressure with the playoffs or more data that they want? How does that work? Definitely in the lead up to playoffs, there's a lot of pre-scouting that teams do for the other team, right? Because during the regular season, you're playing one opponent one night and a wholly different opponent the next night. But, you know, once you get to the playoffs, you're you're going to play another opponent you know, at least four times or, you know, I mean, this year has been super weird or whatever, like maybe at least three times or whatever it is, but, you know, you you know, you're going to be playing this opponent. And then there's a lot of work where, because in the lead up to playoffs, you might not know exactly who your opponent is. So you actually have to run this sort of like opposition scouting package on, you know, five, six, maybe seven other teams, depending on where you are and, and how far out you are and stuff. So There's definitely a lot of uh, work to do, and and sometimes teams uh, come to us for help. So in the lead-up to playoffs, there's a lot to do. And then, you know, during the playoffs, as you're progressing through the series, you're also continuing to scout your next opponent, right? You have much more certainty on who you'll face next. It'll be one of two teams. It's definitely a busier time. But then, you know, as it gets to sort of later and later on, there's fewer and fewer teams. And so it becomes uh, generally less and less work. So 
I know it's also a weird time right now, as in, uh, you know, end of the summer, fall kind of time as we're recording here. You would have had some off-season, actually, and now sort of the off-season is going to be pushed a little bit uh, further now as their season is going to start later because of COVID. So that's just kind of uh, changing things up on you. So we're going to move to segment three here, misconceptions. So what are some misconceptions you've heard about hockey analytics, and what would you say to them? I think, and I sort of touched on this point earlier, but one of the one of the biggest misconceptions I would say is that there is this, like, you know, divide or there's this sort of, like, war that happens between the stats and the analytics on one side and the eye test um, and sort of like professional scouts on the other side. What I would say is that with the data that we have now uh, coming online in in hockey and in other sports, that with better data, uh, it actually allows us to start to quantify a lot of the things that we couldn't before. And it starts to let us quantify them on a much, much larger scale. For example, I can just say one thing. In hockey, uh, a lot of scouts like to look at sort of the gap that defenders give up as the other player is entering the zone. And with sort of player tracking data, we can actually start to measure that gap consistently across games. Rather than sort of like having a scout go and watch a whole bunch of video and sort of assess what the gap is, and, you know, a scout can maybe see, oh, you know, it was good, it was bad – you know, maybe a player was having a good game, bad game. Maybe the, the opposition was really, really good. Just like it, they were playing a really strong team. You know, you, you can't really account for all those factors. But uh, now with this sort of player tracking data coming coming online, you can actually start to actually quantify the gap distance that a defender gives up mm. uh, on a zone entry and actually measure that. And, and it's literally the thing that people that are doing scouting want to look at. But now you can do this in a almost completely data-driven way, let's say. And I think as the data gets better, like I said, the data is still not all the way there. We don't know where every joint is. You know, we can't really tell, you know, skating strides. You know, we can't tell, you know, stick positioning. We can't sort of see where the player's looking, right? Like whether they're, there's this idea of like, you know, hockey IQ, maybe some of that comes from players being able to, you know, do quick shoulder checks and and sort of see what's happening on, on the other side of the ice. We're not, we're not quite there yet. I mean, there's technologies, especially stuff that we're developing at SportLogic, where because we're using computer vision, like we're using video feeds that have, you can actually start to detect every joint. You can actually start to de- detect head orientation and stick orientation. And there, there's going to be some cool stuff that comes out of this. Without that data, let's say for now, we're still missing things like, you know, stick location, you know, head orientation, skating stride. But you know, you're able to get player accelerations, you're able to get player top speeds, you're able to get a lot of these things that you would say traditionally you wouldn't be able to get from just the NHL sort of like data that collects, you know, every shot or, or every hit or every, you know, every face off or something like that. And so, yeah, I think, I think the future is, is going to move towards a place where the analytics will start to more and more align with the eye test. And that's really exciting where, you know, we're able to sort of actually quantify things that people care about. And would you say, I know this will be kind of a general question, but would you say a lot of scouts have bought into the analytics portion of sort of uh, their scouting or they kind of still focus a lot on eye test or what would you say about that? I don't know enough scouts to really speak for, for the whole profession or anything like that. But 
Uh, I, I'd say generally like hockey is probably a little bit further behind than in other sports where people, people are generally inside hockey organizations, maybe a little bit more old school. Uh, there's some organizations that are, you know, further along that curve than others. And hmm. I would say that, you know, there is still plenty of room for, for the eye test, right? Because uh, there are all these things that we can't exactly quantify, right? And the other thing with analytics is that it, it can be hard for the analytics to, let's say, coach a player, right? Like you can maybe tell that a player isn't doing enough of something or isn't skating fast enough, but it's actually really hard to use data to sort of improve a player, right? And, and to actually address a potential flaw. And that's where, you know, I think there's, there's going to be plenty of room, you know, for both people who do sort of the statistical work, as well as people that have played the game and are experts, you know, at understanding how to, how to like get players to do certain things better. There's always going to be room for those, those two sort of different, but sort of complementary professions to, to exist and sort of work together to help improve like a team. So my last question is, it's going to bring it all the way back to the beginning. What did people say to you when you left your profession there? You're going for your PhD. People might have thought that you were a little bit uh, crazy, let's say, or or what are you doing leaving this uh, thing that you've spent years doing? I know uh, we've talked a lot about sort of hockey analytics, but in terms of this last question, maybe some pushback from other people related to the, to your career change. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that life is short and you should really just do stuff that interests you and excites you. And, you know, in terms of like quitting something, I think a lot of people are afraid to fail and afraid to sort of quit something that isn't working. And there's obviously like fear. Like I, I wouldn't say that that transition process that I I undertook uh, leaving my PhD was easy. It was definitely hard. Like there were definitely, you know, I definitely struggled, you know, with my mental health and, and things like that throughout that process. I mean, it was, it was difficult. There's this idea that like there's, there's sunk costs, right. Where you're trying to just do something because you've already invested effort into it. And, and oftentimes like that might not actually be your, your best path forward because what you're doing is that you're sinking more energy into something that might not, you know, is, is likely to fail. And there is this like opportunity cost of like not pursuing something new. And so I know I'm getting like kind of heavy into the the economics sort of like jargon here, but don't be afraid to quit something that isn't making you fulfilled uh, in your in your life or in your career. And you know, there's there's a lot of stuff out there, and and you're gonna find things that will that will excite you. Um, it doesn't have to be data analytics, data science, but it could be a lot of different things. It's worthwhile to not just complete something or finish something for the sake of it. And, and I think that that's a very valuable lesson that I learned going through that process of quitting my PhD and, you know, also be, be kind to yourself and take care of yourself and, and make sure that you're, you know, you're doing the right things for your mental health. You know, I'm learning that, you know, I don't know if I did that properly when I was, when I was going through that process. So, but yeah, definitely, definitely try and uh, make sure that you're, you're, you're taking care of your mental health because that's also very, very important. For sure. And the reason why I asked you that question uh, as we talked off air is because I'm I'm passionate about that as well. And I think that's super important. I know the world of sport right now is uh, very interesting because of COVID. So uh, it can make you second guess your decisions a little bit. As you said, it's important to pursue something that you love and uh, appreciate that sentiment, something that I feel as well. So uh, thanks, David.
And we're going to move to segment four here, rapid fire. I know you named the Jets, but there's got to be a few more. So name your top three athletes and sports teams of all time. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the Jets are Jets are pretty high up on the list. Uh, they, they'd definitely be number one. Uh, and you know, Winnipeg is a you know a one major sport town. I mean, we have the CFL. We've got an independent league uh, baseball team, but uh, and we've got a, a CPL team now actually as well. So, but you know, uh, the the NHL sort of is 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 the big show in town, and and so. Uh, the Jets are definitely, you know, number one on my list. Deep-seated attachment based on just growing up in Winnipeg. In terms of, you know, other teams of the sports, you know, I've become a big fan of soccer in recent years. Uh, you know, SportLogic does work on quite a bit of soccer. I didn't actually end up watching a lot of soccer in Toronto before with Toronto FC. So, you know, I started really here in Montreal, and so I've become kind of an impact, uh, Montreal impact Oh, fan. no, no, no. We don't want to hear that. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm more of an Impact fan than than I'm a TFC <laughs> fan. You know, just watching games at Pudo Stadium, like in the summer. I, I'm sure it's the same. You know, if I'd done this in Toronto, I would have gotten the same kick out of it. I mean, it's just a really nice like environment to watch some soccer on a on a summer summer afternoon, summer evening. So the MLS is 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 kind of a uh, yeah high up on the list. And then uh, in terms of the Premier League, I've um, Started developing an attachment to uh, to Tottenham Hotspur, so uh, they're a Premier League team based out of North London, primarily because they have a, a, an attacking player, South Korean international, uh, Hung, Hung Min Sun, uh, and I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly because I'm not Korean. <laughs> That's but, okay. Yeah, he's a pretty phenomenal player, and uh, it's pretty cool to see uh, see someone, you know, excelling at the highest level uh, playing in England and, and sort of like cheering cheering on 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 spurs and uh what about your top three athletes i think gretzky is definitely definitely up there i mean just the way i mean like like no one no one's gonna get close to touching his records i mean i i think people think ov might might be able to score uh somewhere close to the same amount of goals but his like 2000 plus points is is just absolutely ridiculous and then yeah i mean the the recent jordan documentaries i mean it's been really cool you know i was a kid when when jordan was sort of like in in the in the last dance right like the I, I was a kid watching <laughs> watching the last dance but definitely had no idea all the all the crazy stuff that was happening behind the scenes on on that team and sort of the the fissures that were starting to appear and pretty crazy that he you know also went went to baseball and and was able to get that good in baseball i mean yeah double a yeah incredible athlete question two here what's your favorite sports memory as a fan yeah i mean uh yeah it has to be like when the jets came back in 2011 so i mean there were sort of rumors flying around a little bit but i think things were kept pretty hush hush for the longest time but it was yeah like uh, i believe late june or something or early may mid mid june yeah some, sometime in the summer but when they announced that the jets came back and you know i was in toronto at the time but i was sort of like through the roof and you know just watching sort of what it meant to the people of winnipeg the jets left when i was in grade six so when i was like i guess like 12 years old or something like that they didn't come back until i'd already left for university that was a big sort of moment in my life where i'm like i need to leave winnipeg and and it was it was really cool to see uh see them come back that's definitely got to be one of the the best moments, sort of, uh, at least in my sort of sports fandom. Yeah, so hopefully uh, the next memory will be when one day the Jets uh, hoist the cup. That will probably be uh, your next uh, big memory there. 
it looks like it'll be a couple more lean years. Uh, you know, we had, we had a good team. We were sort of uh, projected to do well, but it's, uh, it's kind of taken a turn for the worse. Unfortunately, there's always next year, right? Yeah. That's what uh, us Leafs fans. I'm, I'm not like a big Leafs fan, but that's what Leafs fans have been saying since uh, 1967. So uh, I don't think you have to worry too much there as a Jets fan. So <laughs> we have a pretty low threshold because, you know, as long as we get a team, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just playing for the participation award. Yeah, don't tell, uh, don't tell the Winnipeg GM that. But uh, we're going to move to question three here. So you got one last meal to eat on earth. You got to tell me the appetizer, entree, dessert, and drink that you're having with it. Appetizer. So I, I, I really enjoy, like, fried calamari. So I think I think that would be, like... Well, I've already started sort of with an Asian dish. So I'll, I'll probably go with... Pho? I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of like Vietnamese food. Um, nice, nice. I mean, just a a bowl of pho. Maybe from a specific place. Yeah, maybe from Pho Metro in uh in in Scarborough. Wow! Uh, shout out to Scarborough, Ontario. And uh, for dessert, are you gonna mix it up or uh, stick with the Asian theme there? Yeah, I might I might mix it up there. So I really like cheesecake, like a strawberry cheesecake. I don't know. I mean, maybe I just haven't eaten it enough where I'm like sick of it. But yeah, strawberry cheesecake is is something I could I could always go for. I'm I'm more of a beer guy than than a wine guy. So yeah, I I, I think I think a beer would probably go go well with this meal. There's a beer that I had in Germany that I I can't really find here that you know I've been I've been craving so. It's called uh, Fr- Francis Connor, so it's like a, uh, it's like kind of this like jolly monk monk beer. So look 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 think, look this thing up. Yeah, but that's that's a beer that I really enjoyed when I when I spent you know three months or whatever, like did a summer, summer internship in Germany, and yeah, definitely definitely drank a lot of that. Drank it like water while I was over there. <laughs> that's uh, that's funny there, and uh, so we're gonna move to question four here. You gotta put a concert there in your backyard. You're allowed to book any band or artist in the world. You got to pick three of them, living or dead, and the order in which they play. One of my favorite bands is definitely the Weaker Thans. They're a Canadian uh, indie indie rock band based out of Winnipeg. I would probably have them close out the show. Right before them, I would probably put the Arcade Fire. So, you know, like the Arcade Fire probably won't be very happy about this, but, you know, they're, they're used to sort of being the main draw or whatever. But They're from Montreal, right? Yeah, they're from Montreal. Yeah, really enjoy, really enjoy the Arcade Fire. I think they, yeah, they're, they're always doing interesting stuff, and you know, their their albums are always really, really good. So Arcade Fire, Weaker Than, and then uh, we'll we'll have some musical diversity to start off with. And for me, like I really enjoy um, older hip hop. So like Most Def, Black on Both Sides is like one of my one of my favorite albums. So it'd be it'd be pretty cool to have most def like uh, pop up and open up the show and and sort of have it switch to the more like anthem rock kind of thing uh, <laughs> towards the end. I like the eclectic mix though. And uh, last question here, I'm gonna give you all the talent in the world. So what sport and what team would you play for if you had a choice? Yeah. So this is something where like you know I'd like to imagine myself as like obviously I played a lot of ultimate frisbee. But I think I think a sport that I I never really got a chance to play, but I think would would have been really cool is uh, actually playing soccer. You know, you don't need to be particularly tall to play soccer. You know, I'm not 
you know, I'm not like, you know, super tall. I'm probably like five, eight, five, nine. It seems like in soccer, you can actually carve out a pretty good career for yourself because, you know, the ball is most often, you know, on the ground and, and, you know, obviously you have to win headers once in a while, but you can do a lot if you're just really good and quick on your feet and, and have good control and things like that. So yeah, that's a sport that, you know, if I were to do it over again, I'd, I'd like to sort of give, give that a, a more serious crack, but, you know, just growing up in Winnipeg, that wasn't really top of the radar, you know, for me, you know, played a lot of other sports and, but uh, yeah, soccer was never something that I uh, got a chance to play, you know, competitively. And would you be uh, suiting up there for the Tottenham Spurs or uh, perhaps the Montreal Impact, even though I don't really want to hear that as uh, someone who's born and uh, raised in Toronto? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say Spurs, right? You want to you want to play in the bigger <laughs> leagues. You want to yeah, yeah. earn the uh, earn the earn the big bucks. So, yeah, let, let's say Spurs. David, that concludes our show for today. If our audience wants to find out more about you and what you do, where can they find you online? Yeah, for sure. So the social media that I'm maybe most active on is Twitter, and uh, you can find me there. My handle is at youorme, spelled Y-U-O-R-M-E. So a bit of a pun there. And I like it. That's probably yeah where 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 you'll find most of my stuff. That's awesome, David. And I don't know if anyone in the audience wants to read some uh, analytics papers there. I know. David and his team published some uh, papers there for the Sloan Analytics Conference. I'm sure those are uh, kicking around there somewhere. Yeah, for sure. I think I think what might be easier is, uh, yeah, like we, we, there's some YouTube videos of uh, presentations that we've given. So that'll probably be an easier introduction rather than digging through a you know, 20 plus page paper or something. Sounds good there. And I'll leave the Twitter handle and the YouTube links in the show description. So if you want to check that out, please do so. So, David, thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast. Do appreciate it. Pleasure being here, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Next week's episode is going to be our last episode of Season 1. It will feature Chris Ruder, founder and CEO of Spikeball. In this interview, Chris shares about how he started the company, the different steps he took to build the culture at Spikeball, and what life is like as an entrepreneur in the sport world. As always, you can follow me on my Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commenting highlights on my YouTube at Juan and Only Sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.